prize ring, the genius of the padded gloves, who whiffed strong men into sweet sleep with a touch of his hand, whose dazzling speed made the fastest boxers seem slow, whose chivalrous and carefree nature had made him an international favorite. He looked like a gentleman and spoke like one. He fought like a dozen fiends rolled in one. No one granted Cyclone much of a chance against Pierre Lacoste, but still, the odds were not high against him, for Lacoste, it was said, had built up a reputation by knocking over the foreign crop of middles and light heavies. However, there was a general feeling in sporting circles that the only good fighters are Americans, or foreigners American-trained. There was a feeling that no foreign champion could quite understand the ripping, tearing, infighting game that flourished on this side of the water until he had been through the mill here. Besides, since the bout was limited to fifteen rounds, it was felt that there was a very excellent chance for Cyclone Ed Morgan at least to last out the limit. All of his backers sent their money to Europe and bet vigorously that the American representative would at least last the full fifteen rounds. In the meantime, Sparrow Roberts brought his man to the town of Juniper to train there. Juniper was at a crossroads saloon at one time. Then Colonel Josh Nichols found gold in the mountains nearby and turned Juniper into a town by his discovery. As he grew rich, Juniper was transformed in a brief six months to a swarm of hundreds of tents and wooden shacks. The gold strike caused a typical gold rush. Other camps leaped into being through the surrounding region, and some of them were very large. But Juniper remained the chief center the fountainhead of supplies for all the others. Its importance was assured when the enterprising railroad drove a branch line nine miles to the doors of the village. Its population thereafter felt that Juniper was definitely on the map. They began to build more permanent structures in place of their old flimsy ones. Presently a thriving little city sat in the throat of Juniper Pass, with the Juniper River washing its feet and the great mountains lifting their white heads in a circle around it. Like spikes in a spider's web, from Juniper a dozen trails led out toward various of the other nearby camps, and all day long there was never a time when a rolling dust cloud on some quarter of the horizon did not mark the approach or the departure of a group of horsemen or of a number of wagons drawn by long teams of mules. Sometimes, when Colonel Josh Nichols sat on the roof garden of his Spanish house on the outer verge of the town and overlooked all this multiplying activity, he had the sweet content of a child who had created a toy, and by chance the toy had worked. He was troubled by one thing only. Whenever he mentioned Juniper, he had to tell where it was. No one had the slightest idea that there was a place of such a name or in what state it might be located. It cost the colonel a good many hours of humiliation here and there to explain the location of his hometown. That was why he finally decided that he would put Juniper on the map. The colonel thought of many schemes. He thought of erecting a great hospital among the adjoining mountains and opening it to the free use of tubercular patients who might need the dry, bracing air of those high plateaus. But there is something repulsive about a health resort to the people who are not sick. The colonel thought of establishing a stock farm in the valley and raising there only blood racehorses of the finest quality. 
he discarded these ideas and others. He discarded among the rest the thought of creating a fine newspaper to be known as the Juniper Times, which would embody all that meant the most in the mountains and to the mountain people. When the world wished to learn what the Rocky Mountain District felt about a certain topic, it need only to turn to the Juniper Times. But a friend, who had had experience in financing a newspaper, confided in the ear of the good colonel certain expense items that made his head swim. The very next idea upon which he hit was the prize fight. Pierre Lacoste was the most brilliant and romantic figure in the ring. Pierre Lacoste had beaten everyone within twenty pounds of his weight in Europe. No one could put up a sufficient purse to induce Pierre to cross the Atlantic and stake his crown. That is to say, no one could be found until the colonel appeared. He offered Pierre, as has been said, a quarter of a million to fight fifteen rounds with any man in the world weighing not more than one hundred and sixty pounds. So the fight came into being. The colonel began to reap a reward at once. Every sporting paper in the country got out maps and, failing to find Juniper anywhere upon it, sent special representatives to write up the place. The representatives came and smiled, but remained to pick up what news they could, and found plenty of it. Seven gun duels within a week furnished the reporters with a tidy bit of gossip. They sent out a flock of feature stories that made some millions of people in far-off cities rush to the moving picture houses and stare at the western films with a new credence. On the whole, it took the colonel about a fortnight to put Juniper most decidedly upon the map. It would also cost him three hundred thousand dollars in stakes and expenses, plus two hundred thousand more for the lining of a certain natural amphitheater nearby with seats. He arranged that amphitheater to accommodate thirty thousand people. His average price would be twenty-five dollars. If he sold out the house, he would have a quarter of a million in profit, above all of his big expenses. He was reasonably sure that he would sell out the house. Inquiries for tickets floated in from every side. The railroad made Herculean endeavors to improve its lines of communication with Juniper, and all was well. A twenty-thousand sale would meet all expenses. But even if there was a deficit, the colonel felt that he had given the place a million in advertising. Men swarmed in from every side. Where the mines had gone short-handed for lack of labor, now the mine owners could cut the wages and still get all the help that they needed. In every way it looked to the colonel like the best and the cheapest bit of advertising that he had ever undertaken in his life, and he blessed the day when he had first conceived it. The mines prospered more and more. The wide main street of Juniper was paved from the station all the way out to the amphitheater, and that bench-lined hollow was given by some aggressive reporter the title of Nichols's Coliseum. Under that title it grew famous. It appeared in Sunday supplements. It was a household word. The colonel had immortalized himself as well as the town that he had created. How could the work have been more complete? In the meantime, Pierre Lacoste began his training in France. But Cyclone Ed Morgan and his manager and trainer and sparring partners arrived in Juniper, 
looked over the place for the site of a training camp, and finally, rejecting all persuasion on the part of those who wished to make them a part of the show properties of the town, they left Juniper's noise and dust far behind them and went out into the open woods to camp and live in a tent until the hour grew near for the opening tap on the gong. Sparrow Roberts was an outdoor man. He selected the camp wisely. It was not high and exposed, but sat in a shoulder of a mountain with a considerable view beneath them. A little stream trickled across its face and showered away in a musical cascade below. In the corner of the clearing, Sparrow had the ring erected, built strong and high so that all who came could see clearly. Then he started Cyclone Ed Morgan to work. They would hunt through the mountains in the morning. At noon they came back to a square meal, two hours of sleep after it, then some gymnastics, and, in the golden cool of the late afternoon, some brisk boxing in the ring. Under that regime, Cyclone Ed developed rapidly. In a fortnight he was in perfect trim. His wind was right. His muscles were neither too hard nor too soft. His mental condition was perfect. It always was, for Cyclone Ed Morgan was born with the happy conviction that he was invincible in fight. The only reason that he did not set sail after the heavyweight championship of the world was that his manager would not make the correct engagements. But in his heart of hearts, Cyclone Ed smiled at the thought that any man in the world could stand up to him in a finished fight. Then the first crushing blow fell. At the end of the first night, walking by himself through the woods, rifle in hand, Ed Morgan...